0: Welcome to the Pro Coder Show, the place where you learn to become a savvy pro. And now for your host. He's
1: built mission-critical systems and battled midnight failures. He's released software used by millions. And he's the biggest Doctor Strange fan you'll ever meet. Greg Turnquist.
0: all right everyone welcome to today's episode of the pro coder show we've got a a packed uh episode today um our opening topic followed by i've uh dialed, called up uh, a good buddy of mine to come on board which we'll get to a little bit later but, but what we're talking about today is what is testing with regards to software what there's there's a lot of strong opinions out there what we're told we should be doing um I agree. Software needs to be tested. I mean, how can you run something in production and not have tested it? But what does that mean? I mean, when I entered this field back in the late 90s, testing was you built something and you handed it to a test team. And the test team had a 27 page document, a procedure, you know, set of procedures that they would walk through essentially to exercise different functionality. If you uncovered a corner case, they updated the procedure. So you know, in the beginning testing meant, okay, I got this change. I'm going to hand it to somebody else. And I may not hear back from them for two weeks because they may be too busy testing other stuff. So that was what the process was back then. But today we have all kinds of automated testing, you know, test it yourself. We have all, we have a dozen and one uh, assertion toolkits, different kinds of testings. And now you can look at any software textbook from a university program. And what do you have? You, They start talking about different, types of testing, unit testing, integration testing, smoke testing, thread testing, end-to-end testing, white box testing, black box testing. But what's important in all that? It's like, are we getting caught up in the taxonomy and getting lost in the thing? And, you know, there's this one story I shared. It happened to be uh, one of the chapters in my Python testing cookbook that was published back in 2009, but it was a sort of a lesson that I discovered was uh, I would inherited somebody's somebody else's app. I didn't inherit it. I went and asked for it because I'd worked on this particular mission critical app that I make, I make reference to in the intro segment. And I worked on that app for 10 years and I managed to hire a new grad that was very talented. So I let him take over the app. And I went and over and took over this business office app that did not run 24 by seven. And and digging in, I realized that it was nobody had gotten this app working yet. The, the the accounts receivable department couldn't use this app. And I had adopted a strategy saying I will not make any contributions without first writing a test case to capture the scenario. You could say it was test driven design. It was I was using the test cases for myself to learn how the software operated. And I can tell you it took me three weeks to get the first test case even written. This was an app that would ingest an excel spreadsheet it would process it it would look for discrepancies and generate an outcome uh, the way the app had been developed there were various things where basically the file had to be in a certain folder i didn't know that when i got started so i i, I like spent two days just trying to figure out where is it even looking for the file and then the end results were in the database so i had to have a file in a certain location and then i had to go look for the results in a certain table in the database and that was very difficult that was very challenging and i'm you know that that multiple times i almost gave up but i said no i i made this commitment i'm gonna hold to it so i wrote you could call it an automated test you know it's not what you're thinking of in standards but it was like it was a j unit based test case and it took like five minutes to run because it went found this gigantic file with ten thousand rows of excel spreadsheet data it sucked it into the algorithm, it did all of its processing and mingling of the data, what have you, and then it went and wrote it out to a Oracle database. And then finally, I had to write code to connect to Oracle, uh, go look at a certain table and try to figure out if the results were correct or not. And I looked in there and, well, the results were correct for what I was testing because it was that that piece of functionality was operational. So I went and figured that out, but the test case took five minutes to run, which sounds ludicrous. I thought, wait a minute, am I going to write another test case and have it do that too? And I said, yes, I am. I'm going to do that because now I can run this and I have some baseline, some starting point to write one. All the textbooks I'd read were like, well, unit tests should run very quickly. Was this, this doesn't sound like a unit test. I don't know. Is this an integration test? This is a black box text, black, black box and white box testing from what I can remember in textbooks has to do whether or not you can see the entrance of the machinery. Well, I'm controlling the app. It's not somebody else's code. It's my code. But I frankly didn't know what the code was doing. So I don't know. Is that gray box testing? And what I realized quickly was I really don't care. I just want the test. I need the test to verify if I'm doing it right or wrong or if I'm understanding what's happening. So I realized I don't care if it's a black box or white box test. That was irrelevant. I didn't care whether this was a unit test or not. That was irrelevant. The taxonomy I realized was irrelevant in my situation. What was important was I wanted to figure out if I was doing anything correctly. I, After a few weeks working with this app, I uncovered that they somebody had built a abstraction, a sort of a spreadsheet abstraction into the code that made it where you could dereference by column and row. And I found out all the algorithms it was doing, that was sort of unnecessary. So. I built up a whole bunch of tests, uh, operate, you know, to, to, to fix some issues, to make stuff operate, and I felt I had a semi decent understanding of what stuff was happening. So I started ripping that abstraction out. I took it out and found out that the app sped up by significant amount. It was an unnecessary abstraction. What is it? Uh, uh, Yagni, you ain't gonna need that, or you, you aren't going to need it in the proper English. So. There's no way I would have done that on day one to pull out what looked like a, a critical abstraction baked into the stuff. But once I had a, an operational knowledge and I had a sufficient suite of test cases, I pulled it out and it it didn't cause any havoc. You know, the number the whole number of users using this app was like six, six people or something. So I didn't have this fear of somebody at 2 a.m. was going to use the app and call me in at after hours. That was never going to happen. So instead I had a bit more leeway to go work with it because I built up some tests. Well, another situation I ran into, um, I needed to make a fundamental change to the app. Well, I had not run this test suite, which did I mention that at this point, the test suite took 45 minutes to run. Uh, By the time I'd built up a sufficient number of tests, it had gone, gone up to 30 minutes. At a certain point, it actually worked its way up to an hour to run the entire test suite that I'd built. And I paused and sifted through and made some changes and tweaks. I removed redundant tests and actually shaved it back to 45 minutes. And I, I said, well, good enough, let me move forward. I had not run the test suite for 45 minutes because it took 45 minutes, it got in my way. So I had gone a whole week without running the tests and I decided to make a pivotal change to the software. So I made my tweak and half the test cases broke. I tried to back up, let me tweak this. Let me tweak that. No, I couldn't make any progress. The test cases kept breaking. I couldn't figure out where the problem was that I had clearly just introduced. So, at the end of the day, because we had version control, I threw away all the changes, all the work for that day. And I think it was a, a two day effort. I, I think I'd gotten to the end of the second day. I threw it all away. And I said, This is what version control is for. It lets me back up to a point where, okay, here's where I know all my tests are working. So I can do that. Awesome. And that was another one of those lessons I really learned. Sometimes it's best to stop. Just stop what you're doing and back up to where stuff is operational. It was kind of emotional for me because I had invested a bit of effort into into making this pivotal change, but I had to let it go. So I came back and I realized, okay, I need to run the test a little more often. Maybe I need to, and I realized also 45 minutes was kind of a little too much for me. So I spent a few days honing the test suite. I got it back down to 30 minutes and that was uh, more acceptable to me. And I got it going and I was able to actually go in and implement this pivotal feature, but it's smaller steps running the tests along the way. And I figured out what I'd done wrong. And that was really the whole point of having this test suite was to be able to make progress, was to be able to, you know, it's like you're you know climbing up the face of a cliff and you're trying to like you know get a get the rope in at this point, and then at this point, so you can make progress along the way. And I felt that it provided me a safety blanket of sorts. And fast forward to a point where I was able to actually take this test suite, the, the my manager had come to me and said they needed a demo for program management. They wanted to see what I was up to. And I said, well, give me a couple of weeks. so i I shifted to where I actually had test scenarios that resembled, more whole threads of using the app, Uh, it just sort of had managed, I'd managed to get to a point where I could interact with all the systems without going through the user interface. And so I basically had this set of test cases in front of me that simulated what the app was doing. I printed out the test cases and I walked into the presentation and I used it like a roadmap in how to click through the buttons and the menus and so forth and drive the app. And that was the meaning after I finished the demo, they were very impressed. And that's when I discovered that six other people had worked on this app before me and never got it functional. It had never been operational for accounts receivable. These people were processing 300 invoices a month from telco providers, Sprint, Verizon, SBC, and like, You know, 101 mom and pop shops I'd never heard of that they they were having to they had invoices come in, they had to chew, they had to go through them and look for duplicate charges, discrepancies, mischarged stuff. And it would take them these six people an entire month to go through all those invoices. The whole idea of this app was to streamline the process, speed it up, and make it more efficient. And so I left that meeting with a better understanding of what my mission was, which is let's get this operational, get these people up and going. So in that Situation It's almost like the testing aspect was sort of secondary. Instead it was what can I do to bring the value to these people that needed to be operational? And we reached a point where I was able to get them going on the app and they could get the basic stuff going, and maybe you know maybe they'd have to go fiddle with it manually later on, but it was giving them a leg up in solving their problem. And we finally reached a point that they could do their whole job with regards to these invoices anyway. Through the application, we started meeting once a week in a conference room, and I used a slideshow. I, I pulled up PowerPoint on the overhead. They would tell me a scenario. I would type it down in bullet points. This is something, if you go digging in the literature, you'll find it's called acceptance testing. The business user is giving me a scenario. I write it down as bullet points in a slide, and then I, I flip new slide, new scenario. Each sli- I would have like five slides. I would go back to my desk, I would turn the five slides into five test cases and I would implement it. And at this point, I'd kind of streamlined the process enough. I had enough knowledge of the system that I could sit there and make, I could implement new features. I could make alterations as needed in a very efficient manner. And I could roll out a change in the next week with the stuff that they had asked for. And it was sometime shortly after that, that I remember going by the break room to get a coffee and, and two of them were in there chatting with each other. And one of them had commented, I got four invoices today. And I was able to get through all of them. And it, it wasn't even lunchtime yet. This person had got through four of the invoices in like probably what had to be two and a half hours. Now, remember, they used to need, take six people to get through 300 invoices an entire month span. And here somebody could get through a huge, a, what, you know, a chunk of it in no time flat. And that's when I realized this is what I'm really here to do. This is what being a pro coder is all about. I'm sitting there trying to make it where they can do their job, where they can implement this. You know, I may have mentioned the story in other episodes of the Pro Coder Show, but that was a real sense of accomplishment in that they don't care about white box testing and integration testing and thread. You know, that, that's just taxonomy for us, or maybe it's taxonomy for textbook writers or something. It's almost like the whole point is we need to let's build something so that it can serve other people so we can if the te- the test cases were serving me. There's other scenarios like what about, you know, this app was in house, so there was a, no security, if you will, they didn't have to log in and stuff when you're doing testing and you're you have a security like so you have an app that's visible to the outside world, there's going to be security in there. Something I, I don't, I don't see as much mentioned in all the stuff about the taxonomies of the world and testing is well you. For practical purposes, you need to test the success path. That's very easy to see. I need to test that I can get in and view this web page as an authorized user. What happens if you're not an authorized user? What if what happens if you're unauthenticated? What's supposed to happen? Are you supposed to get bumped to the to a specific page? Does the thing do that? What if you are authenticated, but you're not authorized? You're trying to access a manager's page, but you're just the customer service rep. What's supposed to happen there? This is where security turns into this combinatorial explosion of, well, I need to test the good path and the bad path and all these various scenarios. And that's something that's very nice to have in some automated testing. And that's why different platforms like I know Spring Security has test constructs to help with that. So here's a test scenario. and I'm going to annotate it at with users. I can pick a particular user. I can pick what roles they have and then lay out what they're doing. And so that's where we have another aspect of you know here's where testing serves another feature in that let's verify it's doing the right thing in the right scenario. is it doing the right thing in the wrong scenario, you know what what is happening there? Um, and I like the 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 appeal I get when I look at some of these assertion toolkits, like one of my favorites is assert J is As assert J, their whole focus is let's make assertions read read like sentences where it's very clear that you're demonstrating this particular behavior that's very easy, you know. We we have other things and and gadgets and thingamabobs to use. For example, we have mocks. Mocks have a certain feature, a certain characteristic. Where I'm not I'm not testing this code. I'm testing the behavior of the code, which is kind of hard to differentiate. But mocks afford us an alternative way of testing. But there's this trade off, which is the fact is, if any of the flow changes, you can break. You know, you can you can break mock tests. And what you can do is generate work for yourself that you didn't anticipate. You can alter this behavior and it breaks that test because the mock didn't expect that behavior to show up. Whether that's right or wrong, the mock may view it as a breaking change. And so we have it, we have, I've done it myself where I've made the fatal flaw of where I was actually, I didn't realize to what degree I was actually, I was just testing the mock. I was verifying the mock works correctly and it wasn't effectively verifying that the actual system works correctly. So testing isn't, isn't free it's not this universal thing that always lets us okay well if i just do this test here this is going to be the right path to go down well it depends it's there's there's cases where you know i would go into a system and it's like oh look okay we've got uh 20 different test classes that cover it i'm going to change a fundamental flow of the thing and it's going to hit all of those test cases so it's like, was, was there a better way to write those tests? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it really is. The change I'm doing is that fundamental and it hits all those corner cases. That's a legit issue. Or it could be, maybe my test scenario is not not optimal. Nothing nothing is perfect. So we have to take what we can get. But there's a form of debt, you know, technical debt in there about amongst our test cases. And so with all the test cases, are we going to have too much debt to deal with that well that's just that's part of the ebb and flow of being a pro coder so uh, you know that's some of the that's some of the challenges we have and you know i wrote a blog article several years ago at greg and i talked about how uh, you know i'd become a big fan of automated testing i like capturing tests and um i'd actually my first position ever back in 97 when i got hired into a big shop um, I didn't write the code. I just tested other people's code. I was manually testing their code, but I started building, I don't know, sort of an automated test. I would print out my assumption of the value, and then I would print out what the function actually generated. And I put them side by side so that I could look at it and see if they were the same value. I didn't beho- I didn't think of putting some form of assertion logic in there, but I would print out stuff. And I knew I had a good idea when I saw another software developer borrow my idea and put it in her test cases. So. I took that as uh, imitation is the highest form of flattery, but so I've been testing stuff. So I had, uh, you know, I wrote this this blog article where I, I come to accept that I like having automated testing. I don't subscribe to the, um, what to me seems like a very extreme example of where it always needs to be you write the test first and then you write the, the implementation that satisfies the test case. I think there's situations where that makes sense. And there's situations where sometimes you just have to you're you're trying to play with the code first, you're trying to play around with it, get a feel for it, get a get it something going that you like. And it's like, okay, now that I like this, let me let me capture this with some tests, you know. And so I'm not I'm not a big fan of what's called test-driven design, which is a very a very specific uh flavor of testing. So I think there's sometimes that can work and sometimes where it doesn't work, but and some people have other strong opinions on that. So what I'd like to know is what's your opinion on testing? You can put it in the comments wherever you're watching this. Um, with that, I do want to share that uh, today's episode of the Pro Code Show is brought to you by 12 Rules for Pro Coders. Um, so, what I've mentioned here is that coding is, or sorry, being a pro coder is more than just writing algorithms, it's more than if-then statements and classes and functions and this stuff. There's there's more to it. There's like meetings and communication and there's things like uh, continuous integration processes that we learn about. And a lot of these things are not covered anywhere in any university program or boot camp program, and maybe they're not even they're not as widely discussed, per even on the forums like YouTube or whatnot. Um, I can go find a million videos on how to build a controller or how to build a web page, but, you know, trying to decide what are some of the the best lessons learned about using uh, particular continuous integration pipelines. Those are maybe a little harder to find some of that content. So I've tried to grab as many lessons that I've learned and put them into this book for you so that you can accelerate your career faster now it's 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 almost released i have it with my editor right now and since it's not released yet it's super discounted so go to 12rules.io and grab your copy today now one thing i always like to do is say i'm i love conversations i like bringing people in and getting you know what's your opinion on this what's your thought on this and i was thinking long and hard about the guest that i invited in is a good friend of mine uh, who's in the past has helped me run the national java user group and i thought I know somebody that may disagree with, I don't know, half or all the points that I just made on testing. So why not go get Tim Pote and bring him in with the. Uh...
1: Oh, you got applause. Okay. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so makes me feel very welcome.
0: <laughs> welcome to the show, Tim. Uh, uh, Tim and I live probably within an hour span of each other, but. Uh, he helped me run for several years the National java user group which we now turned over to other capable hands uh baruch but uh i just thought let's uh let's bring up uh, tim because i know he's going to have an opinion on testing
1: <laughs> yeah i mean everything you said sounded fantastic to me i mean th- one of the things that stood out was you saying the taxonomy of testing is irrelevant. Like I see so many conversations where it's just like, oh, I prefer integration tests over unit tests, or I prefer, I don't do BDD. I do, it's like, I do not, I could not care less. <laughs> what, what what I want is like, or is this thing working? Is it running? Is it useful for other people? Which is what you were focusing on, which is like spot on. I mean, the only other thought I had, well, it's I guess I have two thoughts. One of them is like, there is a cost, to having a big test suite right people are just reluctant to do anything that's going to break the test suite and so you're you're boxing yourself out of certain solutions that are potentially more effective because it's going to break a bunch of tests and you're going to feel obliged then to go fix a bunch of tests and that's a huge time sink and you know that and everybody knows that right um and so yeah i've done before i've deleted bunches of tests because I changed approach, right. <laughs> and, and then I had to have discussions about whether it was okay to delete a bunch of tests, uh, which is annoying, you know. So there's a, there's a certain momentum that over-testing brings, I guess, is a observation more than anything else, you know, does not say it's good or bad. Um, yeah, one of the last features I worked
0: on Spring Data JPA uh, before, before, before I was uh, told, okay, you're not, you're not doing any more spring, Greg, was uh, I, I had, uh, I'd found in data JPA, it has like six different ways that you can do, end up building JPA queries, okay, and I would always end up, I'm over in this corner of the code, or I'm in that corner of the code, or I'm down here, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, the thing that I built helps me here, but wait, I don't have access to it down here, is there, is there a way I can kind of unify it to where the, the stuff that is shared is indeed shared, and so I, I, I confess I used a little bit of Chat GPT to get me going on it. Like I said, like Chat GPT, do you know the internals of Spring Data JPA? It said that it did, so it may have scanned that. It may it may have been lying. I don't know, but I had asked it and it 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 gave me some ideas, and then I went and ran with them, and I started kind of retooling the the the, the internal plumbing of Data JPA to be like I, I want one flow, and in this scenario we're gonna go out this way, and we'll branch it, but we're gonna come back here, and some of that stuff that definitely broke a lot of test cases and so i'm sitting there like like you're saying do i make this change or not and i'm like i'm making this change i decided i'm making this change because it's the right thing to do
1: right this, right but you had to have right some kind to of to do, moral grounding to go through this pain that you're about to go through <laughs> yes
0: and it's like and so and 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 so the the real the real question before me what's what's the little meme where you're like pushing the red button like which red button <laughs> exactly is sweating, yeah is <laughs> Do I delete this test case or do I rewrite this test case? And so all my effort is trying to figure out what is the purpose of this test case that I'm staring at, and that's not
1: free time. No, and you know, newsflash: there's a lot of like meh tests out there, right? Mm-hmm. Like the vast majority are going to be meh, not critical, not a linchpin test here, right?
0: <laughs> and I can see some, te- like at this point, I can look at look at a te- I could look at a test case and say, okay, I'm I'm seasoned enough. This this test class here, I could tell was written maybe in the earlier days when they were trying to, you know, get the first ropes up the cliff and they needed to establish something I'm like, OK, that's fine. It's it served a valuable purpose. Then is it serving us a valuable purpose today? Do I know enough here to maybe throw away the entire methodology of this test case, this test class and rewrite it on firmer ground today? And so there's this, you know, there's this whole Oh, I'm gonna re—I'm gonna rewrite this app, and when I'm gonna rewrite it, it's gonna be better. And then it's like, well, that's that's bad to do that. And it's like, well, there there's somewhere in the middle where maybe it makes sense. This area does would would benefit if I just rewrote this this section. Maybe I rewrote a test class.
1: Yeah, yeah, and th- I mean that's an interesting point too. That's an interesting skill that people don't actually talk about that often is going into a section of code and like dot and reading into like the history of it just by reading the text itself right because you can always look at the git history or whatever that's helpful but there's a skill to being able to look at a section of code that's like oh you know so and so wrote this they're gone you know they did some funky things here and there and you could tell just by looking at it right whether or not this is something you should pay attention to or "Eh, we're gonna maybe delete this desk right
0: Now, for those of you that are catching us live, if you go to ProCoder.io/question, you can find the link. The link is both in the description and it's pinned in the in the chat, or at least it's pinned in the chat on YouTube. We're broadcasting all kinds of places. Go pose your question. Do you have a question about testing? Throw it in there, and I will. I promise you, I'll make Tim try to give you an answer. It'd
1: be good. <laughs> I would
0: love. Let's it. back up a little bit, though. Um, I I like throwing you into the middle of the lake, but let's catch up and say who. Who is this fine gentleman here today
1: who's being assaulted by his uh, by his cat? Um, yeah, we're gonna have a visitor this whole time through. I thought about that this morning. It's like uh, I could sit here and pet pet him like uh, like an evil villain, but I'm gonna try and <laughs> keep pushing him off. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your Hello background? Serbia, you're a Vladimir. pro coder
0: today. Like, how did you get? How did you get to being a pro coder? Like, what sort What's your your uh, Yeah. Uh, so history? here,
1: uh, strap in. It's a long story. All right. So, um. I went to, I went to high school in Arkansas, that's where I'm from, Southwest Arkansas, a little town called Hope, Arkansas, right near Texas, Um, and I went to high school there and I went to college at Hendrix College in central Arkansas. So I got my degree in, I got a double major in music and in physics. And my, my music undergrad was because it, I got a stipend to play music. In the physics side, I told myself when I signed up for it was, well, I need something, you know, practical that I can use to make money down the road, because I know I'm not going to make money as a musician. And it turns out like 18 year old brain isn't doesn't really fully make all the connections you need to. (laughs) Physics is not practical. (laughs) It was fun. It was interesting. I did some fun things. But one of the things I did when I was studying physics was I um, I worked on a for a summer I, I worked as an intern on a particle accelerator experiment where I was helping design the database that they that was going to collect the data from the particle accelerator experiment. And so I had to learn SQL and I had to learn Perl and I learned a little bit of Vim in that time frame as well and in, in command line stuff this was my junior year i started to do a little bit of coding for the first time in my life and it was interesting i found myself staying late at the office continuing to try and make things work i, I wrote some hilariously bad code in this time frame <laughs> but it was good um so i i graduated a couple years later i didn't really do anything more with with code i i worked with my now father-in-law at his law office for a year. This was in the midst of the 2008 financial crisis, right? Which <laughs> it's a fun time to be graduating graduating college with no real world skills at all. Uh, so yeah, I worked for him for a year. Definitely knew how to get out of there. I started studying Java nights and weekends, uh, all of the coursework for my college's java class was free online and so i worked through all the coursework for for java and then um and then i went to germany for six months (laughs) wow i got an internship at a company called mila they make dishwashers and vacuum cleaners and you know consumer appliances so i started i went over there and i i found myself once again doing a lot of programming to to um aggregate data from test runs we were getting from medicinal washers so these are washers that are designed to to get um like dental bits sterile right so the of souped up washing machines and so i i was doing a lot of data collection on those and i had a bunch of stuff i had to numbers i had to crunch so i ended up writing like vs whatever i forget what vb basic right oh. visual basic oh yeah to crunch through a spreadsheet ended up doing more programming and I was like I like this programming thing. So as I'm prepping to come back to the, to the states, I'm frantically applying to every job I can possibly imagine. I mean, I was applying to nonprofits because I had done, you know, organizational work before. I was applying to anybody who would take an application because I needed a job coming home from the states. And I found on Craigslist Uh, an ad for a small company in nashville um that was doing financial modeling and i answered the ad and they (laughs) they came back with like a a request an interview a short you know prep interview with the recruiter and he had me run through a couple of questions and then i went through the broader interview which they handed me a project that was like half done and they wanted me to more or less complete it. And it took me a solid week of okay. just banging my head against the wall. There's a bunch of technologies <laughs> I had no idea about, like Java Beans and and Spring. <laughs> Spring was in there, Hibernate. It was running on Tomcat, right? All these things I had never heard of in my yeah. life. And I'm just like scrambling around, trying to get this project completed. And I did. And it took a week, but I got it, the project fully done, turned it in, and it turns out I was the only one to fully complete all the steps of the project and so I got the job. Uh, It was very very low paying for the market at the time but I had no skills and they were willing to teach me and that was part of the deal and so it was a trade I was super happy to make and so yeah spent the first couple years at that place. Um, I don't know if you want to get further into the career or not but. Well that's interesting. Uh, one thing, one thing I remember is um you know I,
0: I moved up to into the national area around t- 2013 and I soon after that I was one of the the Java user group because I I I'd, I'd met one person at a .net conference that happened to they used to be there devlink and I, like so it's a .net conference and I met this one other person that did Java and we we're like we've got to do a Java user group. And but somewhere somewhere in 2017 I had uh, gone on a Team trip to uh, Germany with uh, with my uh, Spring Data colleagues, and when I came back, I remember we got together. I think it was later that year, and I I, I must have mumbled something about speaking German, and you were like, "I could speak some German. Let's try. to <laughs> just sit here after after the jug meeting is over, and we're sitting at a pub in Nashville. Let's see how long we can talk in just German." And I uh, I was like, "Okay, I'm game for that. Let's try that." I'm like, um. <laughs> let me say that. so that was I I, I completely that, uh, forgot about this fondly. but this
1: sounds just like me <laughs> <laughs> but that was, uh sorry. I could speak a little I I speak I speak okay uh I can hear a lot better than to speak nowadays but so that I That's thought good. that was funny though.
0: oh we have a, uh, now we have a it's an internet this is an international show Vladimir says hello from Serbia hello Vladimir thanks for uh for visiting the show um but uh, yeah the, the the that's that's the thing it's like you know i remember like i've got so i've got textbooks on shelves and actually i've i've used some of this uh, time off to go to sift through and be like what what books do i no longer need i have some books like the dragon book for compiler construction i will never let that book go it's the irony is that book still retails today on amazon for about the same price that i bought it back in college days but other stuff, I have like an Oracle SQL book. Okay. If I need to, if I need to know SQL, I'm not digging into that book. So I, I let it go. But some of these software engineering books that are like, let's, let's talk about the, the let's talk about testing. Like, okay. Well, that sounds like an important topic to talk about. And, and what I realized is some of the stuff is they, they start talking about the taxonomy. I think they, I think they mean well in that let's, let's, let's describe it. Let's describe it attributes. Let's, but I think people have seized to the wrong parts of that discussion when it comes to testing. It's like, okay, that's a that's a that's a nice thing to know. But I I I like see I'm a sucker for these meme ads where somebody's like, unit testing is a, a a drawer a drawer on rails. Okay, we need to make sure that the drawer runs correctly on rails. I mean, that is its primal function. And then here's another drawer that runs on rails, but here's the integration test is the two drawers, right. you know, hit each other and you can't open them all the way.
1: Right, right, right. <laughs> I, my thing is always like, you really should, uh, unless unless you're like providing a platform as a company. And so the, the API is the product, you really should be clicking through and seeing, hey, does this feature that I'm working on still work? does how what is the experience for this user um i think most developers it would be well served to spend at least some amount of time towards the end of every cycle confirming that you know what the user is experiencing is is the outcome yeah. that we want um which yeah i mean that serves the same purpose as an integration test i'm just never sure that it's like are is it best to codify that and like put it out of sight out of mind or is it best to keep it front of mind the thing that you're delivering, right? I tend to fall on the ladder, but and that's right, you know, it's something
0: like I did I could not like one of the later like so in all the, the textbooks that I had, because I, I went to college back in the in the early nineties, um, you know, in the early nineties, the words acceptance testing didn't exist. and nobody talked about acceptance testing. So by the time that flavor of testing emerged, it sort of was late for me to think about adopting it. And it's not until I was I was sitting in that conference room and, you know, I'd had the epiphany. I, I learned one of my favorite design tools, software design tools is called Microsoft Word. Cause it's like, let me just write down what you're saying and capture that as bullet points or whatnot. And I thought, let me use PowerPoint in this conference room cause the font is big. And let me capture those five steps that you're describing to me. And I'm back at my office capturing this scenario. And I was like, wait a minute, that was an acceptance test, wasn't it? That was that was like, an it was like an acceptance test. I was like, now I get it. And, and I'm like, and I'm, and I'm at the same time, I'm looking at the, the, the people that I'm interacting with, the manager for the accounts receivable people is a business analyst. And so business analysts absolutely love Microsoft Access, because it's a spreadsheet on steroids. They're like, this is a spreadsheet database under the hood, and they can write SQL statements on top of it. So they can, it's like pivot tables, move over, you know, pivot tables are real powerful, but move over, it's like select statements to business analysts or gravy. And, I was like, okay, well, this it, the, the thing was like with access is, it's like, okay, you can build all this stuff. Is any of it testable? How much of it is functional? It's, it's up to them to sustain all that, which is like a, a bugbear. So they would typically, we would have the phenomena that the business, the back office business on that contract, they would go build all their little tools and access. And when it reached to the point of unmanageability, when it got too big for them, they would then come to us and say, could you build us an app for this? Could you replace our access database with an app and we're like we look at it and be like that's a three month task right there dude <laughs> yeah
1: but it's uh, all, all of the things that you've built around it to, to make it work. I mean that's the interesting thing is the vast majority of work in program in software engineering is actually not for at least for me is not the programming bit. It's rearranging the company or whatever is going on around the software to make it work. Act to act, you know, actually bring deliver the value to whoever it is that you're trying to get it to. At the end of the day, I mean, I've written, I've worked on multiple, multiple projects where that bit was either entirely forgotten or mostly forgotten. And so, yeah, you at the end of the day, it's like I worked really hard. I delivered exactly what I, I thought needed to be delivered, and nobody uses it.
0: One of these rough. One of the transitions of me going from being a junior developer to becoming a per se senior developer was I, I went to a training course on systems engineering, which I really all I thought at that time is what a, a systems engineer was the person that tells me what I just did was wrong. I you know the they'd <laughs> they, they be like, okay that that looks nice that's that's wrong, and like, huh? And and I went to this training class and they had the they they had an expression that stuck with me which was. um you, you have two jobs to do you need to build you need to build it right you need to build the thing right and then you need to build the right thing and those are two different things so it's like okay there's a correct way to build this but what you're building may be absolutely wrong uh, it may not meet and the the nicely coupled with that is that customers don't necessarily write good requirements the person you're building it for they they may have been told okay they know what they need they've got it in their mind what has to happen and their bosses told them write that into a contract language so the engineers can build it. And they're doing their best to translate that into words. And then when they hand it to us, we're trying to implement what we think that they would need. And I could see that that was sort of a driving reason for this whole agile methodology of we need we need more of these feedback loops to be like let's let's build a little bit, let's show it to you. Is this what you're talking about? And get the feedback. And let's let's keep doing the feedback and keep developing it. And I could see the justification for that in agile, but sometimes I think people got caught up in the methodology itself, just like you're getting caught I mean, in the taxonomy.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, no matter what, people are going to get caught up in the taxonomy, right? It's just, just people. Um, I don't know. I,
0: <laughs> I <I'd, laughs> heard this, I, I'd, I'd heard this philosophy from a guy. I'm trying to remember if it was Daniel Spiewak who'd said it or, or not, but he was on a podcast and it was, there's this, uh, sort of a more of an Eastern philosophy, which was, the, the wording translates roughly into, do not give it a name when you give something a name people begin to gamify it it's like it's our nature to do that and that's what happens when you start naming stuff it's okay now i need to go learn the rules i need to go get certificates and i need to go get accreditation because then i'm going to be a
1: master at that i um i wholeheartedly agree with that and it, it even comes up in my code i will write you know there's a lot of people that will tell you you know five lines is the max method length i just could not disagree more with that i think yeah you're on the same boat but but i will write really long stretches of code almost just to avoid naming i don't want to put a name to this this is what we're doing is the thing right i don't need 17 names to go along with it because of exactly the problem that you're saying like people will see that and either get into fights about is that name proper like they're going to spend their time and energy on not the problem right (laughs) or you know or they'll split it up differently or i don't know it's like it's just not worth it it's just never worth it you know no and it's 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 like i see that that same
0: concept it's it's they they display in that in it's in that movie the dead poet society when the the person the person or the substitute teacher towards the end is reading from the textbook and the textbook talks about a proper paragraph has five sentences in it and it's like i don't know if that's where they got that five lines of code thing from is a proper paragraph has five sentences. Well, I've I've written books, and um, my wife has published twenty-two novels. And the 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 irony is that people that major in English they have to unlearn more stuff if their goal is to actually become an author because some of those rules just are flat out wrong. You just have to throw that out. It's if you if you make every paragraph five sentences, it's a very boring book. And it's when I started reading the Jack Reacher book series, and I would see like. This whole paragraph is one sentence, and the one sentence is a fragment.
1: Yes. <laughs> and you'll like even, there's and, no predicate. I would, there read through a
0: page. I would I would read through a page on that book, and I was like, wait a minute. There was that book. That that page was covered, had fragments everywhere. It it was very like here's a long paragraph, a short paragraph, a long, you know, it was it was chaotic, but it flowed and it and it like gripped me. And it was like, that's what the book is supposed to be, not five sentences per paragraph kind yeah. of nonsensory.
1: yeah one of the epiphanies i've had along the way is that uh programming is is more related to writing a novel than it is as a group you're writing a novel as a group than it is related to like i don't know building a bridge or something like that right i'm um, I mean, not that I, I disagree that i think that programming is engineering proper unlike a lot of other people. Uh, I think it is an, action, an actual discipline with like, things that we can say about it. But the activity itself is more akin to like, oh, there's a big flow of stuff and I need to figure out how to edit the narrative right, right here. And we're doing this all at the same time, all in the same book. You know, and we have to make it make sense somehow. It is more akin to that activity than, than yeah, a lot of other activities. Uh,
0: Kandrew is, Kandrew Vene has posted. I'm, I'm always in a dilemma when I'm writing code down my code in the right way. with smiley face emoji. And it's (laughs) like,
1: true story. True story. story. Speaking of writing things down, one of the things that you said that I really, that is also one of my kind of like mantras is write things down and not in code, right. In English. Like you were talking to those people, you just transcribing what they're telling you, right. You're writing it down in your PowerPoint. I think that that's a skill that every developer needs to become very, very good at, is not only writing down what you're hearing, right, but like with unit tests, write down the test in English before you write it in code. It's going to be a lot faster and you'll clarify your idea a lot faster using regular English than you will trying to funnel it through whatever, you know, programming language you happen to be using right now, you know, because there's a lot of tedium to programming. You know I'd gotten caught up early
0: in my career. Like I remember uh, like study like UML and stuff. I don't the dark days of UML, but of uh like so there's all these tools we had to use at my first company and they would generate uml diagrams and then the the rational the purveyors of uml tooling had come out with um like the architects used rational rows and they they'd they'd come out with this round tripping thing that was like generate these giant uml diagrams it could then generate code the code would have Tags buried in the comments. So you could go edit the code. And the idea was that you could drag it back into your. You could make alterations and pull it back into the tools, and they would update. So you could have this round trip effect, and nobody used that because I think <laughs> they got they got caught up in they got caught into the, the, the as if the UML as if the the diagrams, the actors, and I remember this guy I worked with. He would draw on his whiteboard a the stick figure like an XKCD stick figure, and he would call that actor. And then he would draw another stick figure with a flourished hat and a sword, and say Shakespearean actor. Um, and just nobody used that. You know, nobody used those tools. And and it's when that one of the architects that would come by. They the, the, the company just had a fistful of architects spread across the three thousand engineers. So they would rotate coming on the contract, and their job every now and then was to come onto the contract, grab the source code, suck it into Rational rows, regenerate all the class diagrams, print them on the plotter, and hang them up. On the wall, and I was kind of like, "For what reason?" Right. What was right. I? Don't I didn't understand the point of that. But I would ch- I, the, one of the guys I was good friends with, and I would chat with him, and he would go, "Well, if you need, if you're needing to write a design, I would just write it Word. Just write down what you're doing in Word." And I was like, yeah. "What?" I thought the I thought the stuff. <laughs> He's like, "No, nah, just put it Word."
1: Right. It's you know. a lot faster, a lot easier. uh This is to me. Okay, you're touching on the the kind of real. This is the core issue at work with, with all the talk about testing, all the talk about, you know, types, uh, a, a lot of like build tool conversations, a lot of, uh, programming language conversations, a lot of the developer centric conversations, My, the problem that I, that I have with it is that, um, they all end up becoming like a game within the game. They, they become a game worth playing for its own sake. And it's just a really natural human inclination to say you know oh I want to get really good at this at writing tests and I want to get really good at you know talking to the type system and I really want to get really good at you know Kubernetes or whatever right like I want to get really good at these things that in and of themselves are not that valuable so you're taking focus away from the end-to-end value in order to to hyper focus on a thing that might or might not provide value depends on the case Um, but I think we as an industry overall just get gamified right (laughs) like we take we take to these things that are fun to solve and end up not solving you know the real issues that people are having around not always but often you know especially in conversation if you're enjoying the show give it a big thumbs up
0: and share it with a friend right now um some of the fun i would have with the i don't know the most i don't know something thing that would give me the warmest fuzzies is like so like for we just back in September I was at the latest spring one conference it happened to be spring one at the VMware Explorer conference in Vegas and I was able to chat with Baruch as one of the people but they they would ask us to put time in at the spring booth and so I I'd go down there not because it was like now I gotta go to the booth it was like I like going there because at least you know in the spring community there people are going to come by there people are excited to come by and talk about spring and it's interesting that in, in conference where we we're less than 10% of the conference, we got a huge draw of people to come by there and I like chatting with people to be like, what's the problem? You're, what is your problem that you're solving today? And people would start giving us the real feedback. It's like, well, in our department, we have a hundred apps that we're managing in the cloud. And so they're, they're one of their biggest issues was, is we want to upgrade from spring boot two to spring boot three. How do we do that? That's a, that's a, that's a major data point because I was like, I'd, I didn't know that it building, you know, working on the portfolio project that I was on, I really wasn't aware of that as a big issue. You know, it's like, how do we do that? And ha- happened to be that uh, one of our developer advocates Deshawn, was with me at the same time on that. And he, he jumped into it. He'd actually built a tool using open rewrite to assist with that. And so he would share with that. And I was like, Oh, okay. We're, act- we're aware of this issue and doing that. But I like talking with people that are actually using the stuff because their insight is epic. It's like, what, you know what what problems are people really trying to solve and it's like is is everything And it it lets me put a weight on what i'm doing to be like okay these different things have different importance and some things are less important so i don't need to go jump to them you know here's a kind of put another comment up most of developers nowadays become used to a copy paste game too it
1: is it fine is it fine i mean i've never copied and pasted in my life <laughs> i've uh just kidding i mean i have but i i generally like sit down and think through the whole problem and then maybe copy paste a a piece of it right i i did have somebody work for
0: me once this was just years ago this was way before i got to the spring team this was not on
1: not on the spring team
0: um i had somebody who we hired a new grad and he copy pasted everything and he mm. he could not co- he could not process the context that he was in to understand how to tweak it understand Okay, here's a here's a chunk of code I found on Stack Overflow, and this seems germane to what I'm solving, uh, but you didn't add. The, you needed some extra guard checks to put in there based on the context, and he, like couldn't do that. So after I mean, about the third time, I had to go to my manager to bring this issue up, and eventually um we had to let him go.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. But, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, but this it is that thing like. It's back to the end-to-end. For me, it's always mm-hmm. the end-to-end, right? You need to know what problem mm-hmm. you're solving, and you need to know how to get from here to there, and then you need to think through that before you write any code. And then you are and then you write the code, and you... Yeah, what part does copy-paste have in any of that? None, you know? Now, now once you get to writing the code, like, oh, I don't know how to do a, a stable sort or whatever, okay, copy-paste that, you know, but... Right. Outside of that... Um, yeah, I think. I I mean, had, you talked about I'd, talk. Go ahead, sorry. Well, and I know a, almost a, it's a
0: permutation of this. Is um, you talked about copy paste code? I've I had hired at that on that contract, that big big old contract I worked on with the, at my first shop. We we hired a consultant to come on site to help to help me write some code. In other words, I he he built some stuff. We were building a network operations center, and we had SNMP alarm data flowing into our data center, and we had to correlate it with service outages. Um, and uh, this consultant came in, he wrote a system. We had to basically uh, multiplex the data. So the alarms had to divvy, had to be split up into buckets, a different bucket for each device. So the alarms on this device have no bearing on the alarms of that device and it divvied them up. They also needed to be in order according to timestamp because if it failed at 0, 0300, but recovered at 0, 0400, then you had one hour of outage to be attributed to the customer. Um, so he built a real nice, advanced queue system, multiplexing thing, and then after a week, he was gone. And then his code <laughs> became my code. So he did a great job and worked fine for six months. And then I started noticing an error every now and then would sneak into the system. And it's we had started with eighty sites of 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 alarm data, and it was it eventually reached about three thousand sites uh, reporting data. so the the volume of data was growing over time. And eventually, where you had enough influx of data that we could have a, a, an event, a, a fault, and a clear come in with the same timestamp to the second, and his algorithm would take them and flip them no. because it used a less than sign instead of a less than equal sign in his algorithm, and that took all right, me
1: everybody, listen ever up. Do not use timestamps for a global ordering. Do not. <sighs> Do not use timestamps for a global ordering. It will not work. It doesn't work. <laughs> it never works.
0: I think they had, I think they had um, stratum clocks everywhere, but anyway,
1: that, so but that was a fun, Yeah, one I guess, to, unless you're, you're Google cover. in Google, unless you, Google. Uh, yeah, they have like these you atomic can't... clocks attached to their databases,
0: <laughs> but I'm checking. I don't think I'm, I don't think I was Google. So
1: yeah. Yeah. Oh man. But you mentioned a second ago talking to your customers. That's one of those that's like I I really wish that more that it was more kind of industry standard to do that. I got a I when I was doing this this one project for Cisco, big company, Cisco. Um I I spent six months, eight months on a on a thing, released this big, big heavy lift, right? And I was so excited for people to use it. And I, I wanted to talk to the salespeople and get them to like you know push it and talk to the you know the service reps and get them to push it and you know teach them how to use it and it's just like it was just not going to happen right like this the company's too big um you don't talk to people at that level but that's to me that's like that's the bread and butter I mean that's why you do it right like I want to see the people get value out of it and I really wish it were industry standard to do that um, I had watched on that contract they they'd initially launched it why they they'd
0: managed to uh to 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 shoe in people that had been on the incumbent contract that had worked in with that customer for years and so they they had a keen insight knowledge so that was a good maneuver but um at a certain point we had re- we we'd realized we had very chronic issues that were happening there, there were certain devices that would just always generate outages that weren't real outages, for example. And they had actually picked one of our highest ranking software engineers to take over as the ops manager. And he applied kind of a different methodology. The, the person that had been there before, you know, not nothing wrong with it, but his job is to just manage, sort of keep things humming along. And this new guy came in who was really a software engineer instead of a maintenance guy. And he had he had, had this strategy of let's if we're getting chronic, if we're getting chronic outages that are not real outages, let's go, let's look for a solution. And, you know, he had enough insight to say, well, I realize this is what the contract says. Let me have a discussion with the customer and see if they would be open to an amendment to the contract and say, look, we're willing to take these, you know, the outage, you know, it went down here and it came up here. So this is the window of outage time you get credit for. But if we've got the timestamp in the database, let's wait, until later to actually declare there was an outage after we confirm it, you know, let's confirm it after the, and then we can apply the timestamps after the fact to, to meet the contract obligations. And the customer was like, well, we didn't think of that. That's a great idea. And yeah. And there's a reason that that, that particular person I knew got promoted to level six engineer for which that the company I was at only had two or three of those people was he, he was able to think, let's go, let's go interact with the customer and, Let's try to solve what's, you know, they'd stood up a side team of like a dozen people to deal with the volume of chronic adages that were phantom outages. You know, they'd had a whole team stood up and it was costing them overhead. He's like, let's, let's alter the fundamental contract here to make a
1: better solution. Right, right. I mean, y- you really want to be involving the people that are going to be using your stuff in the solution discussion. They will tell you things that you do not know
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> for sure
1: yep 100 of the time <laughs> and that was one of the methodologies
0: i enjoyed about back in the days when it was uh, pivotal software and how um that did it got we got the namesake for that from you know this this other company that had been started up it was it was based on extreme programming so they they were pair everything was pair programming and it's like that's that's an intense effort. But what they would do is they would pair up, you'd have a partner maybe for this week that you would work with on the same piece of code, and then you would rotate partners. So that was a form of knowledge transfer. Well, they could get the customer to come in and pair up. So at times, if the customer was willing, able in, in the area, they would come in and do that. And so that's a way to transfer knowledge of the stuff to the customer. And the customer could be could be saying, Okay, now I get it. Or the customer could be saying, Wait, this is wrong. Let's we need to go back, we need to back up and go fix that. And so that was uh, extreme programming. First of all, is rather extreme. I I, I met people of differing um, differing make some people are some people are extroverted, some people are introverted, and for different people, that's a different amount of taxing energy. So something not really my cup of tea, but I could see where the benefit was if you compare with the customer. I mean, where else do you see anything like that happening?
1: Right. No. That's brilliant. I I never would have thought of that. That's an interesting, interesting approach to kind of integrate them into that common practice. Um, Yeah, and just bring them along for a full day. The thing is, is like, it doesn't even necessarily matter what you're doing, you kind of just want to be spending time with them. So it's like just a good excuse to spend time together and let them talk about how they work, talk about what they're concerned about, talk about what they're doing. You know, that's, that's great. You know, extreme programming is tough, though. It's, um, I, I don't think there's anybody that comes to the end of an extreme programming day and isn't just more, or pair programming day even, right? And isn't just more tired. It's it requires more of you, you know. Um, even and that's even extroverts. Yeah. And it's like it's, um, you know, the
0: the, the the spring team, per se, didn't didn't adopt that practice. That was more the consulting wing of, you know, we're building we're building this website for this contract for this consulting contract. And they would adopt that. But the spring team. Well, first of all, we just didn't have enough people. The spring team has always been incredibly tiny. And, you know, it was like you that's when I, I left the company where I was on a contract that had 60 software engineers for one contract, you know, there's like a, you know, relatively huge team from a, a company that had 3000 engineers. And I got onto the spring team to find out all the portfolio projects are maintained by a team of like 50 people. And I was like, how, I don't comprehend that, you know, it's, but it's like, it's just, it's a different focus. It's a different, you know, it, whole different there's there's different checks the other thing i learned about was there's also a difference between are you building application code for an end user or are you building framework code that's used by millions of people spread across thousands of companies you know and that right it's a different layout of a lot of times it's just uh no we're not we're not going to implement that request no right. that's that's not general enough for the tool that's what you get with toolkits you
1: know no. right right i mean there's a process of convincing right that you have to do to get a feature in how, how many projects were in the portfolio again i have to look at it. it's like I, there's there's
0: the spring framework spring integration Spring boots spring there's 15 different spring data modules that are currently supported by the data team itself so it was like data uh-huh. jpa redis mago db cassandra and then some smaller ones um which also there's a uh, spring batch
1: But so a few uh, dozen, a few dozen probably. But, but it's like it's that's that's the, the the realization. You
0: go, we'd be at a spring conference and we'd be sitting at a table, and that was a chance to go. You know, you can meet with the community. They formed the the spring conferences had been launched way back in the mid two thousands as a way to bring a distributed team together. The spring team said, let's get together face to face so we can meet, and we'll also put on some we'll put on talks and presentations, to talk about the the product, so that. The community, the most the most uh, uh, active members of the community have a chance can come on site and also meet the team, and we can interact directly with the community. So you'd be you'd be sitting at dinner, and there's like three project leads sitting at the table with seven people from the community, just you know really shooting the breeze on this, that, and the other of the of the technology stack, and it's a real. A real interactive way to find out. Okay, what do you use it for? How are you using it? You know, and you're. It's like you're meeting with the with the leads of the project. that can take that kind of feedback back to apply
1: changes. Actually, do something with it. Yeah, no. People will happily talk to you if they feel like you can do something for them. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's not hard. Oh, uh, but yeah. Thinking way back when I I did. I write things down. I have a little note sheet. <laughs> and <laughs> See, way back when s- I had another you point about what tests. you preach. Exactly. You're telling <laughs> us to write it down and do it yourself. So you can it I honestly I cannot tell you the amount of mental load you lift. If you know exactly what you're doing, you have it all written down, the whole plan, before you start writing code. Like you will just be a more relaxed, chill person just all around if you start doing that. But the the point was uh the other, the other big reason why you want to use tests, sorry, why that you, I heard for you using tests was that you were using them to get feedback about as you're writing a program, right? You, you're using it to get feedback and, and is this a good change? Is this not a good change? And the other thing that I wanted to bring up is there are more than one, there is more than one way to get that kind of feedback. You can use in, in the language that I have, we have a REPL, right? It's integrated into the editor. And so I can be building a program and make small, tiny tweaks and see the effects of those tweaks you know, immediately. I'm just constantly running the program, checking what I did. Is this, was this a good change, not a good change? That's how I develop, actually. I don't, I don't write a bunch of tests because I'm testing constantly running the code as I go on board what I'm doing. It's, a, it's unique to the language that I have, but it is, it is very, very powerful. See, so not what totally I'm
0: hearing you saying is, is that you're ready to start
1: writing a book. <laughs> there's been lots of books yep. written. I don't need I don't need to weigh in on this one. It's called yep. REPL-driven development. If you look up online, REPL-driven development, there's lots of blog posts, articles, YouTube videos. People have been talking about it for a while. The the language that this is coming out of is the closure community, which um, that's my primary language. Um, there are other languages with good REPLs, but not mainstream ones. The best ones were all Lisp based languages for lots of good reasons but
0: and which i had a lot of fun i went and read i was able to find it online was practical practical common lisp the book and it kind of really walked me through i had studied lisp in college and i that was dry academic and boring and so i didn't retain next to any of that and but i went and read practical common lisp and i was like this is cool this is kind of neat now i'm now i see the kind of see the point and um that was, that was very intriguing. And so, that, and this is the other reason I was like, I got to get Tim to come on the show here because he has a perspective I don't have. And I've, I've noticed when I talk, I've, I've, i found that like, I know, I know what this world, th- this part looks like.
1: Um, but if
0: I, <laughs> I oh my, I, I think this might be, it's <laughs> this part of
1: Apple. I thought I had turned mine off. No. Okay. I just the heart. It's
0: like, okay. it's like, it's like, in the stream. Okay. Um, but I would find out I had worked I, at the time frame when I had worked at some of the biggest shops, you know, Tim here, I'd met in Nashville had worked at some of the smallest shops. And so I liked hearing his angle on stuff. And then it's like, okay, I've worked in, um, I used to do C plus, C, C plus plus, but I, I migrated to Java long ago. And so it's like, well, he's using closure, which is a totally different paradigm thing. And I was like, let's, let me hear what he's got to say. Cause it's, I would, I would also talk to my brother-in-law who's been in the.net world for his like entire career. And it's like, he's talking about stuff I've never heard of. And so every time I go talk to somebody, I'm like, what is it, what is this person doing that I'm not doing? Um, this friend of mine works in C, C++ and Rust. And he works with, um, like, uh, uh video files. He's gone and read the MPEG specs to interact with that. I'm like, you know, I'm, that's part of what I want to do with the show is find pro coders, bring them onto the show. And be like, what are you, what are you doing that that I'm not doing? I can't share it all. And let me find the people that have a, like a different perspective. What's this like when you're on a team of 20 people versus 200?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's weird. And you know, the, I, the interesting thing for me about closure, there's, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of takes out there. Most of them are probably partially correct. Uh, like there's, there's a certain, um, Pomposity. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, that a lot of closure developers have that I don't particularly appreciate. But for me personally, it's it's been a very big step for me in terms of personal growth and like learning about how to think about programs and learning about how to structure programs in a way that's effective uh i i don't think i could have learned it in any of the traditional OO or even procedure-based languages uh, it really it it took a lot of discipline but using that for me really taught me a lot about program building to the point where um i most of my time is not spent thinking about code i actually don't think about code that often i, I spend talking to people trying to figure out what they need talk 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 and then i'll very little of my time then is con- condensed into, oh, I can just pound this out. I know exactly how I need to structure it. I know exactly how this needs to go, you know? But years of discipline. That's cool. Well, here, this will, let me wrap it up
0: here. I want to thank Tim for coming on to the Pro Coder show as a part of our Meet a Pro Coder segment and I want to remind everybody that uh, either you can catch it here live in, on the various platforms that we're at, or you can subscribe and get the podcast over at podcast.procoder.io. And as soon as we hang it up here, I'm going to pull it down and throw it onto Spotify to get to get to so you can find it everywhere. Apple Podcasts, what have you not. Well, it's going to go until it's not going to go as Google Podcasts, because they're supplanting that with YouTube. But <laughs> I want to thank Pour everybody for coming for out today's podcast. episode.
1: Yep. Thanks. This episode is over, but your code writing journey continues. Visit ProCoder.io to find links and resources to help you become a Pro Coder.